Awesome. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thank you guys for leading worship. Good morning for everybody who uh, doesn't know me or is not familiar with me. I'm Warren. I uh, help out with the college ministry. been doing that for like two years now. So it's always a pleasure to get to work with the young people of our church. Uh, and it's always a pleasure to get to be here with you guys uh, in the mornings here. I don't often get asked to come preach. Uh, but with Brian being gone, uh, I've actually been asked to not only speak today, but also next week as well. So hopefully, uh, you at least get something out of what I say today, but if you don't, I guess I just have a chance to make up for it next week. (laughs) Um, before we get started, why don't we open up with some prayer, uh, and then we'll get going. Uh, Father God, I want to thank you for uh, just speaking to us uh, in a community of believers. Thank you for speaking us, uh, speaking to us through your word. Uh, God, I pray that as we uh, read your word, that we would be blessed um, and that we would come to know you in a deeper way and to know and understand why you've placed us here on earth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this week, uh, since, since I got to be here twice, since I got two weeks in a row to talk, I figured I'd do a little two-parter. Uh, you know, part one today and part two in a week. So uh, come back for that as well. Uh, but this week, we're going to uh, overall, we're going to be talking about fruit, what it means to bear fruit, what fruitfulness looks like. Um, and, and this week, I want to talk about why we bear fruit. Right. Uh, next week, we're going to get a bit more practical how you bear fruit. What does that actually look like? So today is why you should do it, why should, it should be important to you, why it should matter to you. And next week is then how do you do it? If today made an impact, if today you come away thinking, yes, this is why I should do it, this is something I should do, come back next week to find out how you actually do it. But this question of, you know, why should I bear fruit, I think cuts deeply uh, to one of the most important questions that we can ask as humans. Uh, Why are we here? Right? Because I think it's a powerful question that deep down every human has to struggle with in some way at some point in their lives. Um, despite all the convenience and ease of modern life, the, the magnitude of this question uh, has caused a wave, especially in the new generation that I've been uh, able to be a part of and able to help lead. Uh, despite all the convenience of modern life, it's a depressed and anxious generation that we're dealing with. And, and it's crazy to me because it's not like we have to hunt for our food and forage for our food and, and fight each other to survive, right? I mean, if you want to talk about times in history where people should have been really depressed and anxious, it's those times in histories. And yet, uh, the more and more that we progress, you know, you have uh, fast food that you can instantly get delivered to your door and you have pretty much everything available from Amazon that you can get next day shipped to your door. And we're still struggling with anxiety and depression, And I think it's because deep down, even though we've tried to fill the hole as much as we can with these physical items and objects, we know deep down there's got to be something more to life. Uh, There's got to be something that money cannot buy. There's got to be something that popularity can't satisfy, something that new experiences and adventure can't sustain for the long term. There's something that deep down in your bones, you know that cannot give you life. It can't give you happiness, purpose, and meaning. So the question then is, what fills that hole? What, what can you actually do to put that in there? And this is a question that I think the Bible answers and talks about quite a bit. And by talking about our original design, what we're created to do, um, I mean, it makes kind of logical sense, right? If something's not working properly, uh, you take it into the re- repairman. Uh, the repairman looks at this and says, all right, well, what have you been using it to do? How, what, how have you been using it, right? Have you been 
you know, if it's your car trouble, all right, have you been driving it through the mud, right? Maybe you're not supposed to do that. Or, you know, have you dipped your computer in water? Have you spilled water and you're not using it for the right purpose, right? Um, it, when things are intentionally made and designed for a purpose, they work most efficiently. They work most safely. They work more long-term when they're used in that purpose. Uh, this isn't about trying to hinder or constrain uh, or limit what the product can do. It's about what's best for the product. Um, and the way that you come to know what's best for the product is by carefully reading the instruction manual. And I think that's exactly what the Bible provides for us. It's an instruction manual, a book of guiding principles that tells us about our designer, right? It tells us about who made us, and it tells us about his purpose in creating us, and it tells us how we can live out our lives according to that purpose. So it actually goes into a lot of stuff. Um, and even though the Bible has a lot to say on this topic, uh, I think one of the best you know, succinct summaries of what the Bible teaches uh, actually comes from outside the Bible. Um, and it's come from what's called the Westminster Catechism. Basically, uh, when the country of England was deciding that they wanted to reform the church, they were asking, you know, how do we do this? What do we, how do we formulate our ideas about God? And so one of the first questions they asked was, what is the chief end of man? Uh, or in modern terms, you know, what is the chief end? What is the ultimate purpose? Uh, what is the reason that we are here as humanity? Uh, and, and in answer to this question, they kind of concluded with this beautifully short sentence. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify and to enjoy all directed toward God. That covers pretty much everything in your life, right? Externally, every action we do, every word that we say is directed towards glorifying God, towards bringing him praise, towards making it known how much we love, respect, and adore him. Internally, we have a relationship with God and have come to know him, and we enjoy and find our satisfaction in him alone. Have you ever had someone in your life like that? Someone that just sitting there and being with them can bring you immense amounts of joy? It's not about the gifts that they can give you. Uh, it's not about how much they can make you laugh or smile. No, it's just simply being with them. I think that's a dim reflection. I think that's a mere shadow of what God can pro provide, what God fills in that hole in your life. He's sufficient and he can be the fuel of contentment that can cause you to live externally because you have internally that fuel going through you. But see, that's exactly where the Bible says the problem starts is with that internal contentment, right? We have hearts that desire things. We have hearts that want things. We have hearts that uh, want to be filled up with some sort of fuel. But instead of turning to God, we turn to other things and we try to fill it up with anything else we can get our hands on. God designed us to run on the fuel of his love. But like any car person can tell you, the quickest way to kill an engine is to put something that's not fuel in the engine, right? You pour water down your engine, it's not going to work. <laughs> you pour diesel in an engine that's supposed to take gasoline, it's not going to work, right? The Bible calls this seeking to fill the hole with something that isn't God, you know, the wrong kind of fuel. The Bible calls that idolatry, right? It's kind of like putting a Band-Aid over a big gash or giving someone placebo instead of actual medicine. You know, all these idols like money, sex, or academics, success, ambition— they might make us feel good for a moment. You know, the placebo, the, the sugar that you give somebody, a little sugar pill, makes you feel good for a moment, but it doesn't actually do anything to help solve the problem, the problem for deeper need, the problem for purpose in life. 
And God sees this problem as idolatry, as a big deal. Um, God spoke through the prophet Hosea, and from his vantage point, from God's perspective, uh, the pursuit of idols he compares to having a cheating wife, right? Uh, where she has turned away from her husband and seeks fulfillment in someone else. That's, that's how we've treated God. We, in that story, we are the cheating wife. We've turned our backs on God and said, you know what? I want something else that'll make me happy, not you who will make me happy. And so in Hosea 2, uh, verses 5 and 8, God says this, My people said to themselves, I will go after my lovers, and they will give me bread, and they will give me my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. But she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. I gave her the wine. I gave her the oil. I lavished her with gold and silver, which she then turned to use for other idols. And how heartbreaking is that? That's how we've treated God. Because he loves us, he gives us good and perfect gifts. And we turn around and we attribute that to someone else. Or we give it back to someone else. Use it for our own personal gain, for our own selfish perspective. We turn on ba- our backs on God and declare our independence from him. Right, And so this problem of us turning our backs on God, running away from God, and turning instead to other things that might satisfy us uh, leads to one of the most heartbreaking parts of Hosea. Uh, In the beginning of chapter 4, starting in verse 1, God says this through Hosea, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is only swearing, lying, murder, and stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the whole land mourns and all who dwell in it languish and also the beasts of the fields and the birds of the air and even the fish of the sea are taken away. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge of God. Because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. That's tough, right? We've turned our back on God and God says, okay, if you're going to reject me, it's going to hurt everyone around you. Bloodshed's going to follow bloodshed. Evil is going to grow up, right? And it spills over and affects everything around. Even the innocent beasts and birds and and fish of the sea, everything around it is diluted and polluted by uh, the problem that we have going on. It's a repercussion that goes beyond just us as individuals and actually hurts everyone else. Without God, there's no peace. Without God, there's no joy. Without God, there's no hope, right? When we reject God, you know, it says right there in verse 6, Uh, because you have rejected me, I reject you from the job that I gave you, right? Um, When we reject God, all we can expect in return is rejection. Because God doesn't force us to be in relationship with him, right? He doesn't grab us and make us be in relationship with him. But that doesn't mean he's going to bless us while we reject him and run away. Uh, Hosea chapter 4, towards the very end of it in verse 17, it ends with this gut punch right here. My people have been joined to their idols, leave him alone. For me, that especially, I I read that verse uh, before COVID and after COVID, and after COVID, that leave him alone just hit differently. Um, Because when someone is sick with a disease that's not only killing them, but it's contagious, and it's going to infect and hurt other people as well. When they refuse treatment, and there's nothing they can do to actually make them better, total quarantine is the other only option, so that they don't hurt other people around them. Leave them alone is God's indictment on the human race. So that's the Bible's diagnosis, right? That's what the Bible says we're supposed to live, and we've rejected this. We failed to do it, and so now what we're left with is this place of quarantine and rejection. But what's the prescription, right? Because it's one thing to say, here's what's wrong. 
Everybody can do that. Anybody can, anybody can be a critic and point around and say, here's what's wrong. But the question is, how do we make it right? What do we do to fix this problem? If surely it can't end with leave him alone, he's in quarantine, right? The Bible also talks about this, right? Um, by our nature, we are longing for idols, right? We know that there's something that has to fill it up, right? And that's part of the reason why we have to be in quarantine, uh, John Calvin, a Christian thinker from long ago, put it really well. Man's nature is to produce factories of idols, right? We are an idol factory. Uh, and so God's prescription, God's plan for fixing the problem uh, is actually pretty simple. Uh, he just needs to rewrite your entire human nature, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, easier said than done, maybe. But with God, all things are possible, Right? Um, think about it like this. This is a great analogy that I love. Imagine you have severe heart failure, right? So much so that the doctor has to remove your heart actually and hook you up to a machine to keep the blood pumping and moving through your body. The doctor comes up to you in your bed and says, hey, uh, buddy, you need a heart transplant if you're going to survive any longer. This machine is eventually going to give out. This is not sustainable. This can't keep you going forever. Um, That's exactly what we need to do. But how foolish would it be If we say to the doctor, you know what, I don't think I need a heart transplant. I think really what I need most is just some heart medication, and I'll do some physical therapy, and I'll do some exercise. That doesn't work. Your heart is already out. You can't take heart medication for the machine. You know, the machine is sustaining you. The machine is getting going, but, like, no amount of medication is going to make the machine any healthier or make a new heart grow where you have an empty hole, right? But how, how often is that how we treat God and religion? We think, if only I do these certain rituals, if only I do these certain ordinances of my religion, then I'll earn God's favor and I'll get into heaven. That's dead wrong. And God even says that's an insult to him. In the story of Job, the the oldest book in the Bible, by a lot of scholars' estimation, God makes this really bold, but if you think about it, kind of obvious claim. In Job 41.11, God says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. God already made everything. God already owns everything under heaven. Can you really come up to God and say, hey, uh, I know I've rejected you. I know I've spent my whole life running away when you've called me. uh, But guess what? I gave money to charity one time. Is that going to impress God? Who is first given to him that he should repay us and give us reward, right? Or or even better than that, I think what a lot of us say is, uh, hey, God, I know I've spent my life running away from you, but my parents were Christian. I went to church every Sunday. I got dunked in the water, just like you asked. Who can give something to the creator of the universe, to the king who has authority over all things and sustains the planets? It's like a, ju- it's like a doctor going before a judge, and he says, Hey, judge, uh, I know I murdered one man in cold blood, but come on, it was just one guy. As a doctor, I've cured thousands of people, countless people. Surely this one guy that I killed can't be that bad. Look at all the good that I've done, right? Our good that we try to do doesn't outweigh or diminish or negate the bad that we have done. If it's a good judge, he's still going to find that doctor guilty. In the same way, our good works can't impress God or earn you a spot in heaven. If deep down in your heart, you still have that factory of idols. You're still rejecting God, searching for fulfillment, purpose, and meaning in something that isn't God. What you need is a total rewiring and a total rewriting of your nature. 
And that's the prescription that the Bible gives, right? The diagnosis is, you know, there is a sickness. He is joined to his idols. You can almost say in your heart, you are joined to your idols. And so that heart that's joined to idols needs to be removed and a new nature needs to be put in. And from the very beginning of the Bible, that's always been the message. This isn't something that Jesus just came up with before and, you know, was never talked about in the Bible before him. Um, Moses, the very first prophet in the Bible, prophesied this in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He's going to cut out what's not necessary. He's going to cut out the bad part of your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and you may live. God is going to do that. It's not something we do. It's something God does the work of cutting out the bad part of your heart. Centuries later, Ezekiel said the same thing. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will. God will. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean from all of your uncleanness. And from all of your idols, I will clean you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus keeps up this teaching. John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, unless you have a new humanity, unless you have a new nature that gets rewired or new put into you, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What we don't need is treatment plans or therapy for a body that's hooked up to a machine with no new heart. The solution isn't being uh, more personally worthy to stand before God. The solution isn't more religious ordinances. The, re- the solution isn't anything that we can contribute. All this is just behavior modification. All this is just changing what's on the outside. Uh, and that's not going to do you any good. Uh, it's like trying to take a casket and painting it with a lot of pretty flowers and a lot of pretty, pretty pictures. It's not going to change what's dead on the inside if you're only painting up what's on the outside. So how do we get this heart transplant? How does this actually happen? Uh, If we can't earn God's favor by our works, what then must we do to be saved? The Bible tells us that uh, salvation is a free gift of God. This new heart is a free gift of God. And because we need a heart donor, because we need a new nature put in us, God decided, you know, as a loving father he is, he's going to give us the very best heart, the very best new nature on the market, his very own, right? God stepped down from heaven. He stepped down into our earth. And he sees our inability to save us, and he does something about it. He comes as the person of Jesus Christ, and he offers himself as the replacement for us. Uh, it's what a lot of Christians call the great exchange, right? And an exchange is a two-way trade of something. It's not just I give something to Bill, but Bill's got to give something back to me if it's an exchange. Because he loves us, this is the two-way exchange. We, he gets the quarantine. He gets the death. He gets the being conjoined to the idols. He gets the cross as, as that that we deserve. And it's in his place, we get all of his goodness. We get all of his righteousness. We get all of the eternal life that he has. That's what the cross and that's what the resurrection is about. He gets what we deserved. We get what he had, right? The old nature and the old heart are put to death on the cross. And that's exactly what Romans 6, 5 says when it says this. If we've been united to Christ in a death like his, right, if, if our old nature is put on the cross united with him in a death like his, we will certainly, and I love that word certainly in that verse, we will certainly, definitively, without a shadow of a doubt, be joined with him in a resurrection like him. So you can't get the new heart while the old one is still in there. There's, there's not room for two hearts in your body. You've got to give him the old nature. It's got to be put on the cross with him. And then you will have the guaranteed promise of new, better, purposeful, fulfilled life. 
Remember that terrible indictment from Hosea 4, you know, where it talks about quarantine, leave him alone, he's joined to his idols. It doesn't end there. Hosea, starting in verse six, or chapter 6, and I love this, because if you think about this, this was written 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Hosea 6, verses 1 and 2, says this, Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us so that he will heal us. Right? He put us on the cross so that he will resurrect us. He's torn us so that he will heal us. He's struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we may live before him. This prophecy about being raised up after three days, uh, that's exactly what the Christian hopes for uh, in being saved. If we're united with Christ, then just like he was raised back to life after three days in the tomb, so will we also be raised up. So where do works come in? Where do our fruit come in? I, I mentioned earlier that our good works cannot save us. And I still stand by that, that I still think they have a place in our new life. And that place is as evidence of being saved. It's like lightning and thunder. Lightning and thunder are linked. They're joined. You can't have one without the other, right? But lightning always comes first. Lightning is the cause that causes the thunder. And even if you have your eyes closed, if you're sleeping at night, or you just weren't looking in the right direction to see the lightning, you can know that lightning was present because you hear the thunderous noise that comes after it. Evidence doesn't cause new life in the believer, but it points to it to show that it's actually happened. Going back to remember the chief end of man, uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If our enjoyment and fulfillment is in Christ, that's the cause, then glorifying him is going to be the evidence of that having happened in our life. Uh, And it's very important that we put that in the right order. If you try to switch the order, if you try to put the thunder first and the lightning later, you're going to get neither of them. You're going to be waiting forever for it to happen because it's not going to happen if you put it in the wrong order. One of my favorite authors, uh, Tim Keller, put it this way. This is how religion works. If I obey God, then he will accept me, right? It's putting obedience first and then acceptance and then salvation and the love of God. It's putting the thunder before the lightning. How religion works. If I obey God, then God will love and accept me. But this is the gospel. I am loved and accepted. Therefore, I wish to obey. You've had a new heart. You have new desires. Whereas previously, you didn't want to live uh, according to God. Now you do, right? In Christian lingo, we often call this fruit. Uh, because the fruit shows you what kind of tree it is. You know, if, a, if you see apples on a tree, then it must be an... If you see oranges on a tree, it's got to be a... If you see bananas on a tree, it's got to be a, right? I'm no botanist. You know, I'm terrible at identifying trees, right? I look at a tree and I'm like, that's either a Christmas tree or it's not a Christmas tree, right? (laughs) (laughs) But growing apples didn't make it become an apple tree, right? I'm a non-botanist, like I said. Uh, How long was that tree, an apple tree, before it grew apples? always right from the moment that it started growing it has always been an apple tree the fact that it has apples on it has nothing to do with the fact of anything except showing me who doesn't know anything about it what it is in the same way god puts a new heart in us and our evidence shows to those around us that something truly miraculous has happened that we've been transformed radically by the gospel and so in a way you were made to bear fruit right just like a tree is made with the purpose of bearing fruit but it still is the same kind of tree, you were made to bear fruit. Let's go back for a second, right? 
Every single verse we talked about earlier, remember how I said that we kept the same message throughout the entire story of the Bible? Every single one of those verses talks about a heart change happening and then good fruit following it. Moses said that God himself is going to circumcise our heart. He's going to cut out the bad part. And then immediately after he says this, and you shall again obey the voice of your Lord and keep all of his commandments that I commanded you today. The circumcised heart leads to obeying and walking with God. Ezekiel 26 tells us that the old heart of stone needs to be removed. New heart needs to be put in. Verse 27 says, and I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to listen to my rules. Jesus says that we need to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And in verse 21, uh, John 3, 21, he says this, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, right? We carry out our works in God because we have this new life, because we've been born again, because we have a new nature and a new heart. It's a necessarily linked if-then statement. I think Ephesians 2 summarizes this really, really well. I think a lot of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God and not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might have recognized that first part, you know, it's not the result of work so that no one may boast, right? Hallelujah, praise God for that. It doesn't re- rely on what I can do because I can never do enough. But not a lot of us are familiar with that second part. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The for good works is the purpose. In, in, in language, you call that the uh, definitive statement of why something is happening. Yes, you're saved by faith in Jesus uh, and not by anything you can do on your own. But we're given salvation so that for good works, so that we can bear fruit. As followers of Christ, it's our mission to participate in these good works, in God's plan to reconcile the world, to bring healing and restoration to a hurting and broken world. That's the mission that God has given Christians. Uh, just like Jesus lived and so that others could experience and know uh, the goodness of God, uh, in the same way, we're called to live that, uh, live in a way that others can experience and know the goodness of God. Uh, we as Christians work with purpose and meaning in life for this reason. If you're a Christian or you want to know what the Christian mission is all about, uh, I would encourage you to flip over to Second Corinthians chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 14 all the way to 6.10. Because for me, that's what I think the, the purpose of the Christian on earth is today. I want to just read through this passage. I want to just read through it once to uh, give you a whole overview of what it says. And then I'll read it a little bit more slowly and point out some things that stuck out to me. Uh, but starting in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, going down to 6.10, it says this. Uh, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us 
the, uh, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right and for the left hand. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet we are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, but behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet everything we possess. Look then again uh, back at the beginning of that 514. The love of Christ controls us, right? We have this fuel source. We have this motivation for living that is God's love. The purpose of our life has been redefined. The thing that controls us has been redefined. Because we have concluded this, knowing truth has caused us to put our faith in something. Faith is directly proportional to the object of our faith. So the more we know about Jesus, the more faith we can put in him. You can't, put, you can't put faith in something you have no conclusion about, and you can't draw a conclusion about something you don't know about. And so what is the conclusion that we drew? He died for all so that uh, those who live might no longer live for themselves, right? The historical event of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is a turning point in all of human history and in our own history as we're radically transformed from self-focused to God-focused and to others-focused, and especially the other focus being God, but it changes how we view other people, right? Before we view people, we valued people based on how useful they were to us, how much they contribute to us, how much they entertain us, or how good of friends they were. But right here in the verse, it says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, according to the old way of life, according to the old way of viewing people. We see everyone as Christ sees them, as people who need to experience God's love, joy, and peace in their lives, as people who need reconciliation. (coughs) I'm sorry, that was really loud in that mic. (laughs) Um, We're called to be ambassadors to bring reconciliation to people. And reconciliation is just the fancy Bible word of saying, uh, making peace between two enemies, making people who were friends, uh, who were enemies back into friends. Um, And we're God's ambassadors sent here on earth to do that, right? Uh, if you have a, a pen or something in your Bible, circle, underline, highlight verse 18, because that's what you're here to do as a Christian. That ministry of reconciliation is today what we're called to do in Christ. We look to the world and choose to make things right today, right? Uh, in chapter 6, it says, behold, the favorable time is today, right? And it's not tomorrow that we're looking to make reconciliation. It's not some future, oh, one day in heaven, things will be reconciled. No, we're called to do it and work at it today. Today is a time of action. And I think this is really especially highlighted uh, in chapter 6, you know, 4 through 10. We're, we'll read that again really quickly. Um, but we're, uh, 
As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hungers, right? And we can just pause right there. If the goal of the Christian life was merely to get to heaven, right? If all that the Christian life was just about get to heaven, why wouldn't God just take us up the moment that we get the new heart, the moment that we have the new nature put in us? If the goal is to have good Christian community, why wouldn't God just take us to the place where we're going to have community forever, where we're never going to lose anyone, where in fact we get to be united with people who have lived for thousands of years before us, right? Even if the goal of Christian living was worship uh, and, and, and right relationship with God, why wouldn't he just take us to the place where worship is never ending, where every moment is spent face to face in relationship with him? Uh, these hardships on earth that make things t- so tough, and you know, look back at this, it talks about uh, afflictions, sleepless nights, hungers, imprisonments, beatings, labors, right? If there's so much hardship here on earth, why has God left us here? Because we have a purpose. We endure all these things for the sake of others. Because even though you're treated as dying, you are alive. Even though you might go through periods of sorrowfulness, you're always rejoicing. Even though you seem to have nothing, you possess everything. The peace and joy that you have in Christ surpasses any circumstance you can experience here on earth. It won't make the hardships go away. Christianity isn't about avoiding these issues, but it gives you purpose and meaning in life that helps you go straight through it, that helps you weather the storm. Reconciliation. Christ suffered to save the lost, and so we now suffer, and we're kept here on earth to suffer and to help the lost. And this reconciliation, I want to clarify, this isn't just about saying nice things about God. This isn't just about, you know, verbally telling someone, hey, God loves you. Although that is the first part of it, right? Uh, Romans 5, 1 tells us, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we have that new life, therefore, we have peace with God. So it has to start there, but it can't end there. The Bible actually has really strong things to say about how useless it is to say nice things without actually meeting people's needs. Right? There's a group of people uh, in, the, in the New Testament who call themselves the Gnostics, the in-the-know, the secret society, the, the we-know-better people. And they taught that this whole world is just an illusion. It's, it's all fake. They're, we're not actually here. You know, uh, Some people today might say, we're living in the matrix. Right? Uh, what really matters is your soul. Right? Uh, and so therefore, they would tell people, like, hey, if you're hungry or starving, just think of yourself as not hungry. Think of yourself as not starving. Right? But the Bible says this, James 2, 15 and 16 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled. What good is that, right? What kind of faith do you have? And later in 1 John 3, 17 and 18, the same thing is said. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how could God's love abide in that person? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Christians don't view this world as a false reality or an illusion, but as a real important part of God's plan. The physical world isn't something foreign to the Christian, but an essential part of what it means to have real life. When Christians talk about doing God's will, uh, it doesn't mean only doing the spiritual stuff and ignoring the physical stuff. True fruitfulness in Christ means meeting people's physical needs and spiritual needs, both of them together. And I think that's what Jesus means when he, and when he prays, 
May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God expresses that hope for the reality of Christ making things right here on earth just as they are in heaven. So what does that look like in the real world? I know that next week I said I'm going to talk about how do we do it, but just to give you a little bit, just so you don't get left waiting until next week. Um, I think Micah 6, 8 has one of the best summaries of that, right? Um, God says this, uh, I have told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Do justice. In society all around us, there's evils, there's wrongs, there's things that plague us. And we're called to be ambassadors of Christ to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. If you have time to go home today, read Isaiah 58, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. The people are crying out to God and they're saying, look, God, we're doing all these intense religious things. We're even denying ourselves food. We're, we're going and fasting for you. Why don't you listen to us? And God says in verses five through six, this is the fast that I choose. Loose the bonds of, the wicked, of wickedness. Undo the straps of oppression. Let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not my fast to share bread with the hungry and bring to the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, go cover him and don't hide yourself from your own family. If you want practical, that's what it practically means to do justice. So Micah says, do justice, love kindness. To love kindness means that you as an individual in your everyday life grow that fruit. And what does that fruit look like? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 5 uh, that the evidence of God, the fruit of his Holy Spirit working in you, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This might not seem like a lot. That might seem like pretty simple stuff that's not going to change the world. But if you think about it, what if every Christian was living with those fruit growing up in them? What if every Christian in whatever part of the world they were in were living in that way? That's how God's kingdom works and grows and operates. You show kindness to those around you and make an impact there. And this can get really practical. This is for everybody, right? Um, Going back a little bit uh, in history, in ancient cultures, uh, they had a lot of different classifications for people. And one of the lowest classes you could be was sadly as a woman, right? You were treated as a lower-class citizen, a second-rate person. Uh, In a lot of ways, you didn't have a lot of rights, Uh, And so already that's a rough starting spot. But then on top of that, uh, if you were a widow, right, you you had uh, were past the birthing age, right? You had no more use. You had no more utility. You can't get remarried to someone because you're not going to give them more kids. Your value by society standards was extremely low. But the Bible says that even uh, people who are considered low by society standards are highly esteemed by God's standards. God flips the script and says, these people that society has rejected and put aside and say don't matter, God loves and has a purpose for them. 1 Timothy 5.10 says this, Let the widows among you have a good reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Her value isn't in bearing more children for some future husband she marries. Her value is in uh, the good works that she does. And so that can look like easy, simple things that, that everyday people can do. Raising children with love and patience, showing hospitality by gentleness and kindness, caring for the afflicted with patience and goodness. These are the everyday practical fruit that can come from a life well lived. This isn't for you know, professional preachers and professional Christians who get up on stage and, and deliver sermons. This is a call to, to everyday people, to mothers and fathers, to 
teachers to plumbers to, to young people to old people, if there's something that you can do to show kindness in your life, then love doing that. And the final thing that Micah says, uh, he says to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice that there's three important elements in walk humbly with your God, right? Walk humbly with God, right? Uh, so first of all, if you're going to walk with someone, you got to know who they are, right? You can't have your eyes closed and expect to keep up walking with someone, right? We have to know God. We have to have the object of our faith set on him. Walk humbly with God. In our approach, we need to acknowledge God and say, I know who I am. I know that my heart is a factory of idols, but I know that I have new life only through you. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be humble with ourselves. Uh, and finally, we walk with him. We obey him. Uh, we, we put our lives in his hands and we walk alongside him. And so that's what being fruitful looks like. It looks like doing justice and loving kindness because we are walking with our God. So at Harvest, uh, we like to end every service with two prayers. Uh, and the first prayer uh, is a prayer of turning around, a prayer of uh, asking God for that new nature, for that new heart. Uh, if you're here today and you've never uh, had that heart transplant happen, um, maybe you join me in prayer and pray something like this. Father God, um, I recognize that I have rejected you. I've turned my back on you. I've joined myself to my idols. Uh, and what I deserve uh, is not new life, uh, but is instead quarantine. Um, and so God, uh, would you do a work of transforming my heart, change my heart, put your spirit in me, uh, make me love you and run on the fuel of your love. Uh, Father God, I am sorry for the times that I've rejected you. I'm sorry for the times that I've run away. Uh, but God, I'm ready to turn around. I'm ready to walk with you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, uh, we'd love to hear. Uh, tell someone that you came with. You know, you can write it down on a connect card there. Uh, this isn't about, uh, you know, trying to get tithe money from you or anything. Uh, this is a family reunion, right? Because if you uh, prayed that prayer today, you are automatically a part of the family. And I don't know about y'all, but I love a good old-fashioned family reunion. Uh, the second prayer we play is a, pray is a prayer of application, right? How do you put into practice what we've talked about today? Uh, and so if you want to apply what we talked about today, maybe you'd pray something like this with me. Uh, Father God, um, you've created us to do good works. Uh, God, you've created us to be fruitful. Um, and so, God, I just pray that this week you would show me opportunities in my life where I can do justice, where I can walk, uh, where I can love kindness and where I can walk humbly with you. Um, God, uh, for the times that I have been selfish, when I thought with the old way of thinking, when I haven't let you renew my mind with new thinking, God, would you uh, show me those places in my life? Uh, and would you work on transforming that, helping me let go of that, um, helping me continue to walk? in goodness with you. And God, continue to remind me that my value isn't in what I can contribute to the world. My value and my acceptance before you isn't in uh, how much I can give back to you. Uh, because you love me, therefore I wish to obey. Um, and so God, thank you again for that miracle. Remind me of it. Never let me forget it. Uh, and just remind me of the peace, joy, and love that I have in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.